Yeah, we're in John 12. Just a little bit about John 11. Jesus has finished his public ministry, teaching large groups of people. And he has just visited Bethany, where he heard Lazarus was sick. And he told the disciples that everything that happened in Bethany there and with Lazarus was going to be for their benefit, so that they will believe and so that God will be glorified. But when he came to Bethany, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. And Jesus has some discussions with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and he explains to them the same thing, that God is going to be glorified in this. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead, and people are amazed. In chapter 11, verse 45, it says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. And so this miracle helps their faith. They see Jesus do a work out of his compassion and his love. They see Jesus weep for this man, Lazarus, and then raise him from the dead. And they love it. They just love seeing Jesus love this guy and bring him back. And they see this power and they believe in the things that Jesus has said and the things that Jesus is doing. In verse 46, it says, But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. You know, some believed and some people had to tattle. And so some of these people, they just can't resist the praise of man And they need this praise so badly that it comes in the way of making trouble for God. It says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. You know, they don't debate that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. He's already done that with a couple people with some kids. He says, If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Now, the Pharisees, they get the message and they gather this unofficial council of the Sanhedrin. And John is likely getting this information from people who were part of the Sanhedrin that later became Christians. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, people that that seem to follow Jesus after his death and resurrection. Notice they don't debate that Lazarus was even raised from the dead. They just say, he works many miracles. They just freely admit it. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. You know, Messiah or not, I'm keeping my stuff, and I'm keeping my nation, I'm keeping my position and my status, and we can't let people follow him or we'll lose everything. And the Pharisees are worried that the Romans will see Jesus as a threat. If large amounts of people start following him and calling him king, the Romans will put it down quickly and just wipe out the Jewish leadership, and that's why they're scared. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. John adding that. And so... You know, Caiaphas says it's convenient and practical and beneficial and appropriate. It's to our advantage that one man should die for the people and the whole nation doesn't perish. It's very logical, but it's, it's not moral uh, to seek the death of an innocent man and oppose God's will this way. And it says Caiaphas was high priest that year. He's high priest for 11 years during the whole procuratorship of Pontius Pilate. John's just drawing our attention and letting us know that this guy Caiaphas is going to be high priest when he oversees the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And he's pretty brash. You know, you hear his language. You guys know nothing. You don't even know what needs to be done here. You're overlooking the obvious thing that needs to be done. Jesus needs to die. That's his point. Being high priest that year, he prophesied. 
high, the high priest would spend quite a bit of time with God, receiving divine inspiration. And John writes, because Caiaphas was the high priest, God spoke with him. He communicated some things to him. And then Caiaphas prophesied to the people. And John says that Jesus, he said that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas seems to understand some kind of simple form of the gospel message, but the way that he interprets the information is for his benefit. He seems to believe Jesus deserves to die, and that's not the case. And so God appears to share this with Caiaphas, that Jesus will die for the nation and bring all people under God. And so Caiaphas decides it's a good idea for Jesus to die so that the Pharisees can continue in their corrupted religion. And whether it said, there's debate whether Caiaphas said this consciously or, or subconsciously, uh, not really knowing that he was prophesying when he said it. I don't think that's the case, but there's some debate about it. Um, knowing or not knowing what he was talking about, the prophecy of Caiaphas was greater than he could have ever imagined. And, and you get the idea from John's writing that he's amazed at the words of Caiaphas, and he uses them to justify killing Jesus to maintain his status. Then, verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but when but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. You know, so it's official. The order has come down from the top that Jesus needs to die. He's a danger to us. We vote for death. Jesus doesn't have much time left. It says, therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. He, he seems to understand, perhaps divinely, what's going on, and he's organizing the day that he's going to be crucified. It's going to happen on his timing. And so he's staying away from the Jewish leadership for a short period, maybe, maybe just days. And it says, On the Passover of the Jews, and the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. And they said, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. There were purifying rituals that took place leading up to Passover, and it's almost time to perform all these, perform all these purification rituals. And the religious leaders are thinking, he's probably coming for Passover. And they, they've been on the Jesus Passover train before. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And two times in other passages, it says Jesus drove out the money changers, made a whip of cords, turned their religious system upside down. And then he performed many miracles there. He healed on the Sabbath. And this really irritated uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And they're thinking, he's come here and he's made a mess of our religious system every year for the last three years. He'll come again. This time we'll seize him and we're not going to play any more games. Both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command. If anyone sees him, you report it and we take him. And so now in John 12, in verse 1, it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So now it's six days before Passover. Jesus comes back from this area of Ephraim, maybe a, a day's travel from Jerusalem. He comes back to Bethany, which is right next to Jerusalem. 
This is Lazarus' town where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus shows up after being away for a short time, and they're making a dinner to honor Jesus. Martha's serving. She's in her element. That's her ministry. And John writes that Lazarus is there as though everyone is just still in awe of the miracle that Jesus performed. It was like they witnessed the same miracle again. They're still amazed. Lazarus is sitting at the table and eating with them. And John gives a time reference here. He says, six days before Passover, it's the last week before the death and burial of Jesus. John devotes almost half of his gospel to the final seven days of Jesus' ministry. That's more than the other gospels. In Matthew, it's about 33% that's dedicated towards this final week. Uh, Mark is nearly 40%. Luke is 25%. All dedicated towards these last seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And there they made him supper. And they're obviously there to celebrate this resurrection of Lazarus. In Matthew 26, verse 6, and in Mark 14, verse 3, it, they say that the dinner was at the house of Simon the leper. And I covered some of this in our first study in John chapter 11, because it, it touches on it there. There's an ep another episode where an unidentified woman associated with harlotry pours perfume on the feet of Jesus. And that takes place at Simon the Pharisee's house. Uh, some presume that Simon the leper and Simon the Pharisee are the same, and that would make Mary of Bethany either a, a former harlot or a harlot. And it's, it's possible because you can't disprove it, but I think it's highly unlikely. Because with close scrutiny, when you look at the two events, it simply appears that they're, they're separate events. The, the timings are different. They occur at different times chronologically. So there isn't good reason to believe that Mary of Bethany is a harlot. There's no reason to believe Mary Magdalene was a harlot. People just assume that when this unidentified woman pours perfume on Jesus' feet. Uh, and there's no reason to believe Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany are the same person. One's from Magdala, one's from Bethany. There seems to be a distinction there we're supposed to know about. There's also a potential problem here, uh, an error people talk about that isn't there, but an apparent contradiction because John 12 says dinner happens six days before Passover. But in Mark and Matthew, those passages that talk about this event seem to refer it happening two days before Passover. But it's, it's not. Judas is going to play a role at this dinner. There's a significant Judas event coming up here with this, with this perfume that we're going to talk about tonight. Matthew and Mark are, when they're writing about this, they're preparing you for this future communication that Jesus is going to have with Judas at the Last Supper, which is two days before the Passover. And so they kind of approach their writing style as, before we tell you about this Last Supper and what Judas did there, we want to give you the background. And so they talk about what the Pharisees were plotting two days before the Passover, and then they get on the subject of Judas, and they tell you what Judas was doing and it doesn't say six days before the Passover. It just tells you before the Passover. And then they explain what Judas was plotting two days before the Passover at the Last Supper. Uh, but before they do this, they go back. They flash this dinner event that happens in John chapter 12. So Matthew and Mark, they, they are flashing to this event at Simon's house six days before the Passover. Then they continue to tell you the narrative of Judas's betrayal that happens two days before the Passover after Judas leaves the Last Supper. And so these guys are saying, oh yeah, as we talk about this event that happened two days before the Passover, you need to know about this background with Judas. This John 12 meal in Bethany is discussed. 
as though this was what convinced Judas, this act of Mary and this dinner was what convinced Judas, Judas that he needed to go act. Uh, Mary is going to embalm Jesus for his death, and that spurs Judas to action. So if you have questions about this, I can probably explain it better then than right now. <laughs> um, what we do know is we're at Simon the leper's house. Since Martha serves and seems to be the host, hostess, some people presume that there's a relation that exists between Martha and Simon. Simon may be Martha's husband. Uh, I'd say at the very least, Martha and, and, and Simon have a good enough relationship where Martha can say, hey, let's have the dinner for Jesus at your house because it's a better place or something like that. It's more suitable. Or maybe they're married, and that's why Martha is serving at Simon's house. Martha's in her element here. She loves to serve. It seems everyone appreciated and knows that she's good at it. Uh, we don't know anything about Simon the leper, although the title obviously speaks for itself. I presume he's called Simon the leper because Jesus healed him. It's probably not because he's still leprous <laughs> coming to the dinner table with Jesus. This family has seen some amazing miracles performed by Jesus. And they're overwhelmed with gratitude and they all want to honor him when he comes to Bethany. And there's a bit of a picture of heaven here at this table. There's a whole bunch of people that have been restored and living in a relationship with Jesus. And it's kind of coming to this end time now of their time with Jesus. And there's this table that they're all sitting at. Just like we're going to be at a table with Jesus after we're raptured. After we go to heaven, we have a, uh, a dinner with Jesus. And so in verse 3, in John 12, it says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And the custom was that when a guest entered the home, the feet were washed after they entered. And then the guest's head would be anointed with a small amount of oil as well, or perfume. And the feet were usually washed with water, and then the servant, the, the lowest servant, would wipe the, the guest's feet with their hair. Uh, and that was part of why it was a, a lowly job, or a job for the lowly servant. But Mary does things a bit differently. She probably also anointed the head of Jesus with perfume uh, that she used for his feet. But John is noting the unusual part of the circumstance, that she poured this precious ointment on the feet of Jesus. Water wasn't going to do for the feet of Jesus, and she intends to greatly honor him. Mary washes his feet. There's great humility. There's devotion. It's a very humble gift that she's offering him. And another unusual part of this is she seems to do it in the middle of dinner. Uh, the feet were normally washed right after the guest entered the home and not during the meal. And so I'm not really sure what this tells us. Perhaps she wanted to honor him in front of all, in front of all the guests. And so maybe that's why she did it during dinner. Perhaps Jesus just said something at the table and her response was just to run and grab the oil. <laughs> maybe Mary planned to do this when Jesus entered, but she lost the nerve. Uh, maybe she was worried about how she would be perceived. And so she finally works up the guts to go do it and she just does it during dinner. <laughs> She seems to be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit when she does this, though. You know, halfway through dinner, she says, it's, it's now or never. And Mary's gift is extreme. She used a lot, a pound of expensive oil, this spikenard. spikenard. Judas will say the oil is worth 300 denarii in verse 5. And that's a year's worth of wages. So whatever that is, you know, 35 grand, 50 grand. I mean, this is a, a very expensive act of worship. 
And she had to let down her hair in public to wipe the feet of Jesus. And doing that in public was a sign of loose morality. Uh, but she doesn't seem self-conscious about it. She's determined to anoint Jesus with this act of humility and to honor Jesus. So this pouring of perfume, letting her down her hair to wipe Jesus, this is the only account of the worship of Jesus in the Bible that has a physical description. You know, as, as opposed to somebody just openly praising Jesus. This is worship of Jesus. It's intimate. There's sacrificial giving and honor. This is the only picture of worship, physical picture of this open worship of Jesus in the Bible. So when you think about what worship of Jesus looks like, this is, this is all we're given. It's her giving at a great expense, and it's an act of worship when she does it. Another thing that's interesting in regard to what she poured is that no one really seems to know what spikenard is. <laughs> uh, the word is pistikos from Mark 14, 3, and there's many possibilities. Uh, it may come from the adjective pistos, which means faithful or reliable or genuine. Maybe she's pouring something symbolic, faithfulness, on the feet of Jesus. Uh, it may come from the, ver the verb penin, which means to drink, and that could just mean a, a generic liquid that she's pouring on his feet. It might be a trade name. You know, it might be she's just grabbing the Chanel number no. five, <laughs> and they just know what that is, and, and we don't. Uh, it could be essential oils, right? <laughs> Jesus says something and Mary says, I have an oil for that. And she runs and she grabs it. <laughs> some think that it could be from a, a pistachio nut extract. And some say it's spikenard is a plant that's grown in India. And it's a floral kind of perfume and red in color. And no one seems to know exactly, but they, the people that are there, they know what it is. And they know it comes at great expense. They know it's very costly. And Mary never seems worried about offending people for being at the feet of Jesus. Mary's more memorable scenes in the Bible, they all feature her at the feet of Jesus. In Luke 10, Mary learned at the feet of Jesus. That's where she offends Martha because Martha is busy working. And in John eleven thirty two, 32, when Jesus is coming to raise Lazarus from the grave before he raises Lazarus, Mary falls at his feet and he acknowledges his power and she calls him Lord. And then here in John 12, 3, Mary anoints Jesus' feet, and she's only worried about honoring him. There's a, there's a pattern in this for us. She learns at his feet, and then she accepts, accepts him for who he is, calls him God, and then she worships him. Jesus pours into us with his saving grace, and we choose to receive it, just like she does, and then our response is to worship and honor him. Now, this house was filled with the fragrance of the oil, this strong fragrance, it likely enhanced the memory for John. He must be recalling this wonder. I mean, the whole house must have smelled wonderful when she did this. And this would have activated everybody's senses and probably given them a more vivid imagery and memory of what happened here when they would recall this and remember it later on. No doubt John remembering this scent as he writes. Now verse 4. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, John writes, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. And so John spells it out here. He says, Judas will betray Jesus. And now you have this 
compare and contrast. You have the, the light of Mary and her worship of Jesus in contrast to where Judas is standing. And he objects to the gift. He's seeing an opportunity to deceptively call attention to the poor and specifically to the money box. And I think it's interesting. These guys, though, they, they had no means of income. They lived off the contributions of the people who supported them. And they carried a box of money to occasionally give money to other people. Uh, the word poor actually here that's used, it actually doesn't mean poor. It just means common people. It's just a box that they gave to give money to people in general. And Judas may mean it in the context of giving to the poor, but the word used implies that the giving wasn't restricted to the poor. And so they could have given gifts to people, you know, thanking them for the hospitality that they showed them. You know, for attending celebrations and wedding gifts, they could have used the, that money for things like that, just to give honor to people. And they probably gave a lot. You know, Jesus taught these guys to rely on God for their provision, even when they had very little. Judas is probably very irritated to see Mary's act of worship. She's doing what Judas should have been doing. And that can be really irritating and convicting when we're acting in a way we're not supposed to be acting. And then we see somebody acting a way that we are supposed to be acting. Judas was probably a pretty smart guy who could cover his motives very well. This is the only place in the New Testament where Judas is mentioned as doing something evil besides the betrayal of Jesus. In fact, nobody even suspects that this is evil behavior that's coming from Judas. They just trusted the motives of Judas and they thought he was being genuine in his concern for the poor. Judas had everyone thinking that he was acting selflessly except for Jesus, obviously. The disciples, they're presuming positive intent, and they're, they're doing the right thing, and so does Jesus. Uh, we love people, we do ministry with them, we trust them, and, and we're to assume a, the best about them when we're doing ministry with other people. One day, though, they typically betray you. We have that experience uh, where they, this person completely reveals their self-ambitions or, or their evil, selfish behavior, whatever it is. And honestly, the longer you're in ministry, the more likely it is that this will happen to you. We're supposed to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Uh, we're not supposed to blindly let these things happen if we have influence over them. Um, you are supposed to go into ministry understanding that, though. The people who want to hide their sin are usually pretty good at doing it. And to some extent... It's only a matter of time before someone in ministry slanders you or takes from you or sets you up to fail or, or attacks you. But you can't let it affect the way that you treat people and, and presume good intention. Uh, you can't let it affect the way that you treat people. And so Jesus just loves on this guy, although he's going to bark at Judas here, as we'll see. But Jesus will put Judas at a seat of honor at the Passover meal. And he continues to bless and love Judas. And these disciples will be scarred by the betrayal of Judas. I mean, they're going to have to wonder, how do we trust anybody after we saw this guy follow Jesus? And, and that, they're going to have to deal with that. And they'll have to not let, that, let this affect their behavior towards other people. They'll need to continue and presume, po presume positive intent, or they won't be good leaders, right? I mean, people won't want to follow them. You can't be a good leader while acting like the people around you are just going to let you down. <laughs> Does anybody want to follow a guy like that? You know, that's, that's not inspiring. That's not encouraging. And so these disciples, they're developing good leadership skills. 
and they presume positive intent of Judas, and they believe what he says. And Jesus can handle this differently because he knows every thought that Judas is having. He knows what's going on in Judas's heart. And we'll see how Jesus handles this. But for us, this is good to consider. Do you treat people on a regular basis as though they're going to let you down? <laughs> or do you presume that they're going to do well whatever they say that they're going to do? Uh, this model shows us presuming positive intent here is, is where we start. When someone says something, you know, we don't check our brain at the door, but your first instinct is it should be to believe them and to expect that they're going to do a good job. And when they don't, then they need to know how you feel about it. And Jesus is going to let Judas know exactly how he feels about this interruption from Judas. But then Jesus will go on knowing that Judas will kill him and betray him, but leading by example for the disciples and being a model of how they're supposed to treat Judas. Um, because no one has evidence that Judas is up to anything otherwise. And so Judas says, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? And this is kind of an awkward scene. Uh, the question is so self-righteously focused, there's no regard for Mary's feelings in the matter. She just did something, and who knows what conviction she is feeling. I, I wonder if she had doubts about pouring this flask on the feet of Jesus. Judas, he could be totally humiliating Mary with this comment. And, I mean, wouldn't you have doubts? I mean, there's you know, a $35,000 oil. Well, do I really need to worship Jesus like this? Is this kind of inappropriate? I'm not really sure what to do here. And she's probably having some doubts. Um, if Mary has any lack of confidence in what she's doing... Um, she's going to have some doubt. And so she pours the spike nard on Jesus' feet. And then here's Judas pipe off with this disrespectful comment about how she manages her finances. I mean, that's really what she's being criticized for here. And he could have deeply humiliated her. Now, if this were to happen to somebody with a lot of conviction, a lot of confidence, you know, the person might snap back at Judas. You know, yeah, well, no duh, stupid. I can think of a, you know, a good way to spend $35,000 too, but I was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I did it, and if you got to hate, hate, I'll do it again, you know. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what she does here. <laughs> um, this is something that, that rattles me a little bit. I feel kind of passionate about this because this is really ministry all day long. You go out on a limb, risking looking stupid, sharing Jesus with somebody, and then all the haters who are too scared to do anything themselves all of a sudden become master critics of your ministry. And I have a lot more respect for guys who have zero tact and put it out there anyway for Jesus than people who have a little bit of tact and don't use any of it. They do nothing with it. And so Jesus... He doesn't want you to be scared, right? I mean, there is an overwhelming amount of people out there that just enjoy hearing that God really is good. And that's, that's really what we're trying to convince them of. So Judas is whatever he's convicted by his sharp sense of financial values. And he's thinking Jesus is getting too much honor and Judas needs to get some honor. There's no yielding to the Holy Spirit. He goes against the praise for Jesus. And the other disciples, they get filled with pride too here. They have some selfish attitudes. This selfish attitude of Judas is contagious to the other disciples. In Matthew 26, it says the other disciples, they start complaining after Judas does. They start getting on the bandwagon that Judas starts. 
And it looks like they're all convicted by Mary's action because none of them would do what she did either for Jesus. And John, he looks back on this whole mess and he tells us what Judas must have been thinking at the time. No doubt they later discovered what Judas was doing with the money box. Jesus knew all along that he was stealing from the money box and yet he appointed Judas to be the treasurer to take care of the money. And God will challenge your loyalty like that. He, he, he won't make it easy for you. The road is narrow and he will make you choose. He puts you in a position that strengthen an all-in kind of a commitment. Are you all-in where nothing is going to shake you in your faith of Jesus? He doesn't want you in the kingdom of heaven because you've got a greed problem, but luckily you never came across, came across multiple opportunities to steal. So, you know, whoosh, you made it, and that's why you're in heaven. <laughs> um, you either love God more than these things or you don't, and God will put you in positions where he's going to continually challenge you to trust him. And when you do, you become more like him and he reveals himself to you when you obey him and your strength grows and your faith grows. In Luke 8, verses 2 and 3, uh, it says that generous women helped financially provide for Jesus and the disciples in Jesus' ministry. And so that money was kept and managed by Judas. And Judas is lying about his interest in the matter. So it's no wonder he has no concern for, for Mary. Or that Jesus was being worshipped in, in her act. Uh, the word John uses for the word uh, to take, bastazo, where it says Judas used to take what was in the money box. It, it can mean to carry off the money box, but it, it can mean to lift it, like to shoplift it, like to carry it off. Uh, and it's used in the continual tense, as though he was continually lifting from the box. And by some chronological accounts, Judas went the very next day after this and he made the bargain with the religious leaders to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You know, Judas wanted money and you get the impression that this idea of Judas's didn't work to get more money in the money box. And so he's going to get his money another way by betraying Jesus. Verse 7 says, But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And so in response to Judas, Jesus kind of barks at him and says, you leave her alone. And I wonder what his tone of voice was here. <laughs> it probably shut everyone up pretty quickly because these other guys are starting to get on board with the thing too. Uh, it kind of like maybe when you go to somebody's house and you're the guest and maybe there's a husband and wife that, that, that have the home there. And, and one of them says maybe something a little rude. And the other one says a little something rude back. And they start getting kind of an argument. And everybody sort of, sort of gets quiet. And, well, I'm going to go check out the basement. And I'm going to the fire pit. And I'm, i got to go to the bathroom. There's a little bit of awkwardness when you see these people fighting like this. And that was kind of a scene like this. Where now Jesus and Judas are arguing. And everybody's kind of sinking in their chair. <laughs> then Jesus justifies his command. He says, leave her alone. She has done this for the day of my burial. And now, I mean, Judas is doing a pretty good job of making himself look bad, but Jesus is drawing a lot of attention to it. You know, Jesus says, you're telling her she's paying too much for my funeral. And it's a pretty rude thing to object to the amount of money that somebody's spending on a funeral service. But it's equally rude anyway for Judas to put a price on Mary's devotion to Jesus while he's still alive. And he's making that point too. And so Mary, she's remembered for this. This act is memorialized in Scripture. In Mark 14, 9, Jesus says, 
Assuredly, I, I'm telling you the truth, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And what's interesting is that Mark writes that Jesus said that, and he doesn't say that the lady's name was Mary. And that's kind of bizarre. It's supposed to be memorialized forever like we don't know who her name is. But then you have John mentioning her name, but not the promise. And the accounts together fulfill the promise. Now, it's interesting that even though Jesus told the disciples about his death, they, they don't seem to take it seriously or liter literally. Mary of Bethany seems to be the only one. And I mentioned this a little bit when we were talking about Lazarus. I wonder if Mary knew to anoint Jesus for his death because of what Lazarus saw when he died. You know, he was dead for four days. And what, what did Lazarus see and communicate to his family about what he saw when he was in the spirit with the Lord? And did he see Jesus with nail-scarred hands and just understand completely what was about to happen when Jesus resurrected him? Uh, Lazarus is there. You know, he's at this table. And we do not have one quote, not one word from Lazarus after Jesus resurrects him. It's just kind of interesting. <laughs> um, verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. Jesus was there and they came. Not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so Lazarus, is, he's a popular guy. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And so the chief priests were mostly made up of Sadducees, and they didn't believe in a resurrection. And so Lazarus is a major theological problem for them. And having him around is an embarrassment to their theological system. And since they're not willing to change their theology, the only reasonable solution is to murder him and solve the theological problem that way. And so when you think about this, we see this in our day too. They seek to eradicate a person's testimony and the history of any event happening. And any other challenging evidences of truth that they don't believe in, they just try to completely get rid of. You know, in our culture, we do the same thing. We say things like, you know, we used to say before Christ, we used to say BC. Now the proper term is BCE, you know, before the common era. And, you know, it's funny, you know, in the battle of Armageddon in the Bible, people assemble and they take up weapons to fight Jesus when he returns. And, and we read that and we're kind of like, you know, really? <laughs> That's what they're going to do? They're going to pick up a weapon, pick up a gun and, and kill the eternal God. It's madness. You know, it's, it's unbelievable except that you see this behavior like this. You see it in the Bible. You see it in the foolishness and in the culture that we live in where the result of sin and pride is, is ending up like this uh, in insanity. It's baffling to see these guys try to kill someone that God resurrected from the dead so that they can be right about the book that God wrote. It's satanic. And the people, they're this deluded when they hate Jesus like this, they'll hate anyone who testifies of Jesus. And those who say, my life is a miracle because of Jesus, uh, the, the opposition to this will trivialize your testimony if they can. And they'll create doubt about your credibility. And if you have Loctite evidence that Jesus did something amazing in your life, they can hate you for this and they can go to great lengths to make you be quiet. And the other thing that's kind of crazy about this, 
I don't know. Let's say that they do kill Lazarus. Can't Jesus just resurrect him again? <laughs> I, I wouldn't want it necessarily for Lazarus' sake, but I think it would be kind of cool if they kept killing him and Lazarus just kind of like, well, here he is again, here he is again, here he is again. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, how do they think this is going to end? You raise it from the dead. <laughs> um, how it ends for the people that watch this and see Lazarus, it says, on account of him, many of the Jews were went, went away and believed in Jesus. And so they went away and believed. And this expression can mean they increasingly believed in Jesus. It started with a little faith, and people are simply unable to refute the evidence of Jesus' deity. It's amazing. He really is God. Lazarus was dead for four days, and Jesus raised him from the dead. And all Jesus did was call his name. And all these people are probably thinking, probably like we are, I want him to call my name like that one day. You know, I don't want death to be the end. I want to be with Jesus when I die. And that happens when we acknowledge the cross and when we acknowledge his resurrection. And the cross is just Jesus bearing the wrath of God in our place because of things that we do that we know are wrong. We deserve a punishment. Jesus takes the punishment. And the resurrection is Jesus demonstrating that he has power over sin and over death and over everything. So that when he says, whoever believes in me has eternal life, we can believe him because he paid our debt and he overcame death and sin and everything. He has eternal life. We have evidence of this. We experience his eternal life as Christians. Uh, we have evidence that he lives through us, through a relationship with him. Uh, the Holy Spirit works in us. Jesus answers our prayers. He organizes circumstances around us uh, to show us that he is there. He exercises gifts of the Spirit in believers. We see miracles. We see healings. And we see fulfilled prophecy. Even, even amongst gifts of the Spirit within believers, but obviously through His Word, it, it's, it remains true all the time. And we love these things because they give us this confidence in His promises that God created you for a relationship, that we have a sin problem. We're constantly doing things that we know are wrong, and we deserve a punishment for that. And that, that's our rebellion against God that separates us. And despite that, he shows us love by bearing the wrath of God in our place. That's the cross. That when we believe this and his resurrection, we receive eternal life because he is eternal, because he overcame sin and death, and he has the power to give it to us. We inherit eternity with him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. We just thank you for all the good that you give us, Lord. We thank you for evidences that you are still alive. Uh, working in all of our lives, Lord, we see amazing things. Um, not just miracles and healings, but people who are like completely closed off to you and completely hard-hearted, just completely doing a 180 and completely changing their lives to worship you. That's, that's an amazing thing, Lord. And we wish that for people here in Prosser. You know, we just pray that there is... There are, heart, there are hearts being prepared for you, Lord, and we pray that you use us to uh, minister to them, to serve them, and to proclaim how good of a God that you are. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.